Hello, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. In this podcast, I get to know creative misfits, underdogs, wild rebels and those people who have stuck one giant middle finger up to society and live life their way. Today's hero is a fashion influencer, model, makeup artist and activist. They have also worked with icons including the one and only Grace Jones and used their own personal style as a protest. They're an advocate for a more inclusive fashion world as well as being a spokesperson for HIV, AIDS and sobriety. They're a self-described queer fashion nomad so I feel very fortunate to have pinned them down today. It is Miles Sexton. So Miles, where are you at the moment? I just recently moved out of Toronto and to like a tiny little town called Wabashine. Uh, it's like northern Ontario, so I'm tucked into like a little woods in my cute little cabin house. <laughs> so reading up on you, Miles, it's interesting. You you grew up in what sounds like a really idyllic setting, surrounded by pine trees, nature. And now you're here talking to me in a similar setting. So what impact did that isolation have on your personal growth growing up? I mean, it's so interesting because, yes, like definitely growing up in a small town, like literally my town was like under like almost 1500 people. Like it was so tiny in Nova Scotia, Canada. I don't know. I think when you grow up in a small town, I think there's like so much of like a fundamental part of like who you are that kind of gets ingrained in your, I don't know, in your spirit. And like, I think what brings you peace and joy. And even though I like avoided that for like, you know, over 12 years of my life, I was like, ah, you know, I want to be the opposite. I want to live in a city. I want to like be a part of this, you know, this like metropolitan kind of culture. I don't know. I I realized, I think, in the pandemic, just how much anxiety I think, like, the city actually gives me and that I needed to kind of go back to my roots and and choose sort of my own grounding self-joy, you know, versus, like, you know, being so close to, I think, to all of the action. Because I'm really bad with boundaries. I feel like I just want to, like, do everything all the time. I can't say no. So it's, like, kind of forced me to be like, okay, I'm an hour and a half away now. You know, am I actually going to, like, go to this event or be do this project, you know? So... I mean, isn't that the ultimate boundary, though? You're setting up a physical boundary. It it is. Do you link who you are today and the career that you've had with that upbringing, especially as a, a, you know, a queer creative um, nature being isolated? It leads to, I would imagine, a level of imagination and, and daydreaming and stuff like that, right? Well, it's so true because, like, I also didn't grow up with television. I didn't have the internet, you know, I think until I was, like, maybe 16, I think, is when we got it for the first time. So, like, you know, I didn't have a lot of reference to, like, just art and culture and, you know, music. And and so it was just, it was kind of interesting for me because, like you said, like, I, I just felt like I spent most of my days sort of dreaming in this sort of fantasy world that, you know, I, I was using as, like, an escape, I think, from my own, like, reality. But I, I just remember, like, my parents would, like, be like, don't come inside until the sun goes down. And I would be, like, in the woods just creating these oh fantasy God, worlds, beautiful. you know. And I was super obsessed with Lord of the Rings. So, like, you know, I was pretending I was an elf and, like, you know, living my magical fantasy in the woods. So, <laughs> Isn't it wild as, as, as and we have, we have a lot of queer creative people, just because I'm naturally always so interested in hearing their background and their motivations yeah. on this podcast. Oh, I love that. Um, and, and it's, it's a lot of it is, um, it, it's really interesting for me to find out the careers and the lanes and the, the path that they've chosen and how it's linked back. I mean, I grew up in a, in, in a inner city 
really densely populated, one of seven kids. And That's so cool. Even though I wasn't out running around, I was, well, I was, I was out running around setting fires to things. <laughs> but I, I, I spent my time hiding finding little places so I could go into my dream ah, world. That's so interesting. Because I guess the environment didn't match it. So it's, it's so fascinating to me. And why, can I ask, why, would, why were you not watching TV? Why was that not a part of your life? I, I think it was just from, like, a place of privilege, you know? Like, I think my, my parents, you know, grew up very simple sort of country folk, you know? And, and it just wasn't... Yeah, like, I feel like it wasn't something that they could really, like, necessarily afford. Like, I remember, like, on the weekends, like, my dad would let me, we would go to, like, there's, like, this kind of corner store down the road. And he's like, okay, like, every Friday I could pick out, like, a VHS. And, like, we, and then so I could, like, watch that over the weekend kind of thing or whatever it was. And, but, like, I was only allowed to really watch, like, National Geographic kind of documentaries or, like, you know, they were quite, like, I think strict with, like, what they allowed me to watch like they didn't want me to like watch violence and you know I really feel like they tried to like curate I think my uh, my upbringing so much in, in a way but I imagine um Nova Scotia apart from the beautiful nature and the setting it, it doesn't lend itself to that exploration of um, individuality and self-expression, right? <laughs> so, all. so when was that? When was that? When was that moment where you you realized, oh, this is me. This is who I am, and this is the road I'm going to have to go on. And 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 how was that for you uh, growing up at school and, and and in places like that? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was a bit of a a bit of a journey. You know, like I sort of had this moment where I, I finally became like friends with this like with a guy, and it was like really like one of my first like guy friends. You know, and and he was like a bit more like punk emo, and I was like, oh, like you know, I was so gravitated towards him because I felt like he like didn't give a you know a shit about anything, and like I love that he like kind of dressed a little bit different than like everyone else in my town. And so, like, you know, I, I felt like I started kind of emulating his style, like, a bit. And then, you know, one thing led to kind of another. And we ended up, like, sort of having, like, this first sort of sexual experience kind of together. And I was like, oh, okay, like, this this is kind of, like, what I tried to, like, what I, I guess I was looking for. like Or, like, I guess the answer is to, like, what I was feeling. Because, you know, like, I, I didn't know queer people existed and you know even in that moment of us kind of having this sexual moment I was like oh like are we allowed to do this like I remember asking him like permission because I was like I don't I, I've never heard of this before you know and and you know that sort of like led me down a bit of like a psychological spiral just because I, I was I found it really hard to like wrap my head around because you know I think we grow up prominently especially at my time in, in a world where you date women and that's like what's meant to be. And, you know, I think like religion played a big part of that as well. And, you know, I, and so it was just like, it was really hard on me anyway, like trying to like be like, Oh, like I, I am attracted to men. Like how, how do I like navigate this? Um, but it really kind of like, I feel like where I really bloomed was, you know, I, I had survived like a suicide attempt and in coming out of that, I feel like, I don't know, I, I very much like, I feel like it was sort of this like resurrection into kind of like the new, the being that I always wanted to be. And it really gave me this new sense of like confidence and like wanting to live life for myself. And, you know, I was a bit like disappointed in myself that like, you know, I was, I had attempted to take my life based off of the thoughts and opinions of other people. And 
I I just didn't want to face that. And I don't know. So it kind of like gave me this new courage. So I was like, I remember that summer after, you know, I was kind of recovering from my attempt. I just like dyed my hair. I like bought a bunch of like really like, you know, more like bright, more effeminate, I guess you could say clothing. And I just like showed up at like my, my last sort of school year, kind of like middle fingers raised and like was just like, this is who I am and you need to accept it. And I, I really wasn't taking any shit. <laughs> I, I love that, Mars. And, you know, it's, it's just it's something that really resonates with me and so many queer people I know that go to the lowest of low place by feeling isolated yeah. and lost. And uh, much like yourself, I didn't know any queer people growing up. And I mean, it's scary enough realizing you're gay, but then that realization that when you come out, that that's not the full realization to kind of chase that queer ideology, I think is, is so daunting and such a big hill to climb, right? It's so true. And like, you know, it's so interesting though, because like for, for me, I don't know about you, but like for me, I, I felt like I was told like what my sexuality was like my entire life, but I never understood it. And I find it so funny because people always told me I was like gay or would call me a, you know, a faggot or queer, but I never, I was like, I never like acknowledged exactly what that was, or I don't know if I, I never fully understood, but because I was always like, you know, I think I just naturally leaned into my divine femininity, you know? And so it's just kind of interesting that that was always sort of used as a weapon against me. So I tried to like avoid it maybe so much like psychologically that I just like blocked it out. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> the divine femininity. I love that. I love that. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like, you know, if you ever want to become a musical artist, I think that that's what you need to call your first album. The divine femininity. <laughs> Sounds marvelous. Uh, if only I was blessed with the singing voice. <laughs> There's something about coming out. You know, I've, I've talked about this a lot as well, mm -hmm. that sometimes we're not blessed with making that choice ourselves, like like what you were yeah. saying, that it's forced upon us. Totally. Right? And, yes. <laughs> and so you walk in every room and you don't need to come out because people have already decided what you are. And I sometimes think that those labels are put upon us by people that don't care to understand what they totally. mean. And the one thing I've learned as I've got older is that as a community where we're best is when we don't have the labels and we thrive on the, mm -hmm. the, the wonderful, ever-changing colors that we can be. And isn't that the biggest joy? And the biggest joy in your, the realization of it, that we can be it all. And we can totally. change and, and we can pivot. Exactly. And we can do it all. It's, it's a marvelous realization. It really is. Having that freedom, you know, to just like discover who you are and experiment with that and just having the space to evolve and grow. It really is. I, I, you know, since moving to Toronto and kind of having now that space here, it's just like, I just, I feel like I don't recognize, you know, very much like a lot of who I used to be, you know, uh, or it's just allowed a lot of that to come out. You know? That's interesting. Do you sometimes feel like you've shed many skins? Because I do. I sometimes look back at my life in my 20s and I, it's much like what you just said. I, I kind of look at, I recognize, I recognize him. I remember loosely. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I watched it on television. But, but who, totally. who, who was that person? It's so true. Like, I feel like I have like, you know, like my era, my little eras of like a baby Miles. And, and it's just like, they're so drastically different from like, you know, just within the matter of a couple of years. Like I just, I was like constantly like just re 
reinventing my image just like you know, Madonna based off of just how like I felt. Madonna yeah exactly I feel just like Madonna and actually that leads me in the most perfect segue into the fact that at, just like Madonna <laughs> you ran away to New York yes. to, to, to <laughs> that, that and this is you know it's a tale as old as time this I did it moved to London with about 10 pound in my yes. back pocket to make it you know moving away you. and <laughs> do you remember that moment and what was going on in your your heart and your head and what were your fears and hopes for me it was it was such a like sever of like so much of my life and so much of I think like a severing of so much of my own internalized like stigma and shame of just like who I was I just like I remember being at the airport I had like literally like a suitcase of like thrifted clothing that I had sort of like collected and those were like my prized possessions like I'm like I can't move without these things and and I just remember like saying goodbye to my family at the airport and then like landing in Toronto and it just being, I don't know. It's like, I felt like it was like the entrance sequence of like a, a of a movie, you know, where like the, the, a, the actress like arrives Flicking in Paris and, you know, and I win machine. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, <laughs> you know, so it was like this, you know, this brief moment of like extreme, you know, uh, like extreme beauty and excitement, you know, and then I have to survive now. <laughs> How am I going to do that? Talk me through that because I think we all, those that those of us that are brave that do chase yes. after what we want to be and the world that we want to inhabit, we have this live in the dream moment, right? Yes. But the reality very rarely matches up to the dream. So what? Oh my gosh! The live in the dream moment was to run away to New York. What? What at that point did you want to become? Yeah, like I mean, for me it was like the biggest thing. I think was like I wanted to become the person that I wish I knew existed in the world, you know? And I, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't see myself. I didn't see myself in magazines. I didn't see myself in TV commercials. You know, it's like, I felt like there wasn't an example of like, you know, a queer person that was like leaning into their own divine femininity, like being showcased, you know, it was like at that time it was such this like over like, you know, testosterone induced like man, you know? And that, and that was sort of like the image of like male beauty and, uh, that always bothered me. So I just, you know, I really was like, I want to model. Like, I, I really want to like see if I can do this, you know? And so like really moving to to Toronto, I was like, okay, like I want to like chase a modeling career. I was also doing makeup, like, cause it was just like a way for me to survive of like, cause it was way easier to get a job in makeup than with modeling. But yeah, like, so that's sort of the intention that I was setting, like, in moving to Toronto. But, you know, it's like the reality of that was so drastically different, you know? It's, and what like, was the reality? Yeah, I mean, I, I I found a house, like a room to rent, like online that I put a deposit in. And like when I got there, it was like, like the walls were covered with like smoke soot and like the, it smelled like cat pee. And it was just like, uh, literally, it looked, you know, a bit of like a crack house. And I was like, oh my God, and I have to live here. And like, you know, totally different reality than from what I was coming from. And, you know, and then I had like lined up a job, like kind of leading up to me moving there was sort of like what encouraged me to move. And then like weeks went by and I never heard from the job and they just like decided not to give me the job anymore. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I have like literally like $200 left in my bank account after I like put the deposit on my room. And I was like, how am I going to survive, you know? And 
like I feel like the universe like provided, but it was a struggle, you know, like I was like, literally I'd get like a loaf of bread and like a giant thing of peanut butter. And that's what I was eating every day, like for all of my meals, because that's like all I could afford just trying to like scrape by until I could land something else. And I mean, luckily for you, you did and you've had an amazing career and you've done such a a width and breadth of things. And that shows for (laughs) me, um, that shows for me a lot of, character and a lot of resilience yes and adaptability so you obviously have that in your personalities so for sure I think many queer people I think were survivors and especially for me and how I grew up you know I think I was like you know I I I survived death I can I can like push through this like I survived my high school (laughs) you know I can push through this so like how do I, you know, yeah, how do I make it happen? And, you know, but, but, but it did, it, it forces you to be like a networker. And, you know, like I, within like a, you know, the first like month of me living in the city, I was like trying to meet as many people as I possibly could. I like, I had purchased like a camera. And so I like, cause I needed to shoot sort of my own portfolio a lot of the time because I couldn't like hire photographers to take the pictures. So I like remember posting on Facebook being like, oh, like, any models that like want to pose for me. And I was like shooting this sort of like series of images of just like, you know, beautiful, like beautiful men and like in sort of my bay window that I had in the room that I was renting. And, but it like allowed me to sort of like connect with so many different queer people in the community that kind of like got, allowed me to like find little side jobs. You know, I was like handing out flyers on the street, like for like nightclubs or, you know, that was sort of one of, one of my first jobs that I was doing. <laughs> have there been people from the community in particular that have been there for you on a, on a bigger level, on a mentor level? Because yes. I think that, you know, we run away, we find our chosen family, our chosen family yes, being absolutely. a lot of the time the queer community. And I think that not all of us do find that. It's been the biggest... No joy of my life honestly to to not only find um a queer family but also to then take that take that baton and create my own and give that to people and it's a gift isn't it it really is like just because I, you know i think just i think once you like let go of your sort of like blood attachment and like all the emotions that sort of like are, are surrounded around that you really do get to like you know i think find a group of people that like truly believe and love you for who you are and and don't have this sort of like preset notion of like who they think you are. Um, it, it really is the biggest blessing. It's, it's kind of funny. So like, because the story for, for, for my chosen family, I went on a date with a, with a guy and he took me to this restaurant. And like, when we went to the restaurant, it was like, this plate of food was like $5 and it was like, all these potatoes and fruit and salad and like two eggs and like two pieces of bread. And I was like, what? Like $5 for all this food. Like I can eat this like, like the whole day, you know? And I remember like, I, so I kept going back to this restaurant and there was like a woman working behind the counter and she was like this like cute little Armenian woman, but she had like the same color eyes as Elizabeth Taylor. So one day I was like, you know, mustered up the courage to be like, oh, your eye color. It's like Elizabeth Taylor. It's so beautiful. It's like kind of has that purple sort of tone to it. And she's like, oh, baby, we think you're so gorgeous. Like every time you come, like we, we say in Armenian, like how much we like think how much we love you and you're so sweet. And then like next thing I knew, I'm like having dinner with these this family like once a week. <laughs> And they sort of just like brought me into their, into their family. And, you know, they were a group of, right. Like, 
and they're like, you know, they, they were sort of this, these, they, they escaped the war in like Lebanon, like way, you know, ba- like back, back, you know, a few years ago. And they like came to Toronto to kind of start a new life for themselves. And she was like a single mom raising two kids, like in Toronto, you know, it was definitely really hard for her too, but it was so cool just the way that she sort of like brought me into the, this sort of like, you know, family and especially from, you know, for them too, it's like, you know, I think being queer in Armenia is still like a death sentence. Right. So it's like, it's pretty amazing that obviously even for them, like they could just recognize, I think my journey and my story because it was, you know, not, we had common threads. Right. And they just sort of brought me in. So it was I pretty amazing. Is a, you know, the, the, and this is the one beautiful thing about living in a city, isn't it? Is that there's a real, um, there's a real bond in your difference, but yes. your difference is the thing that you might not understand the religious background. You may not understand the path that they've walked, but what you do understand mm-hmm. is that feeling of being other and different. And that's totally. the bonding thing. And I think cities really do that. London's great for that. It's just so fantastic. Yes. Agreed. So we talked before about phases and, and shedding skin and having to come out. And one thing that, um, what, you know, when reading about you that I was just, I admired you so much for was uh, how public you've been about coming out as HIV positive mm-hmm. um, and your status. <laughs> because, you know, in, in this day and age, and I, I've lived many decades of it, you despite don't what it. the Botox says, I've been around for okay. a long time. <laughs> um, but there's still such a stigma, you know, it's totally. about to be World AIDS Day and... I really want to keep these conversations going. It's absolutely important. So what was your motivation to be so, to be so honest and, and um, frank about it? You know, I, I think yeah, it took me a while. It was like, I mean, for me anyway, it felt like for like a lifetime, but it was like, you know, I had really been living with it for two years and I just like, I felt that it was controlling me. And, you know, out of all of the things that I sort of had faced in my life that were, you know, my, my traumas, this was like the hardest one, which I find so interesting. And I, I don't know if it was because there was so much of this like societal stigma and just shame that it's like attached to it. But I, I had really such a hard time like trying to make peace with it. And I remember I was like, I literally was like, I was traveling. I, w- I was like, you know, what? I need to like soul search. I need to figure out like who I am now because I felt like it changed my identity. And I was like climbing, I did this really like intense hike up to like the top of this mountain. And I remember like on my hike up, I just had such a like a a realization of like every sort of moment that I've had in my life, I've like reclaimed my power and I've used like that pain and the trauma that I experienced as like motivation and strength and to turn it into something good, you know? And I think that's sort of like how I feel and how I see myself in the world is like, I want to sort of take these things that are painful and like put them like, and kind of like take that and put it into a place that's like, that's beautiful and full of light. And I was like, you know what, I can do this too with with my HIV status. And I think a way to hold myself accountable to that was by publicly sort of coming out and just being an advocate for, for living with HIV and that you can live a very normal life because I didn't have like, like I think with my own, like, gender identity at the time, you know, when I was younger, I didn't have a reference point 
to someone who was HIV positive and was just like living in joy because we don't really get to see that. You know, luckily now we have Jonathan Vaness and, you know, Billy Porter, but it's like, they're still like, you know, that was just still so recently that they, that that happened, you know, and I think our, our view of HIV very much is like the eighties and death and, you know, yeah. this like the loss of, you know, millions of people. And I think that, that people still look at it as a disease in one note. Yeah. You know, they don't see it as a lived <laughs> totally. experience or a human story. They also differs and changes between each person. Mm-hmm. But, so but the living with HIV is the difference now, right? We're not yeah. we're no longer dying. Um, but what it doesn't, you know, and, and my experience of this and someone that's around it within my community a lot mm-hmm. and also someone that has my own, I would say, generational trauma, Mm-hmm, you know, I grew sure. up, uh, I was born in 1980. I grew up oh, wow. in the late 80s where, where the media were just picking up on it. But the 90s, it, it was essentially all in the press. And it was yes. in the press in the way that if you are gay, you don't, and that wasn't HIV. You get AIDS and you die. Yes, so I exactly. grew up honestly thinking that if I came out as being gay, I was going to die. And I don't, I I think that gets underpinned. That really gets underpinned that we look at it as this disease. But what we're not Mm -hmm. actually understanding is there's a huge amount of um, mental trauma that we're holding as a community. There's lots of psychological stuff. It has so much depth, doesn't it? Totally. And and no one talks about it, you know? Right. whether it's HIV, it's just like this internalized internalized homophobia, just like internalized queerphobia. Like there's just so many like layers, I think, of like mental unpacking that I think we have to do as queer people. And yeah, it's it's really not really discussed. And it's sort of like, oh, uh, you know, it, it's sort of dealt with with I'm going to party. So as someone that's thrown parties for the last yes. 20 years, <laughs> Same. Yeah, that's, been my, that's been my career. Um, it's one of those things that, it's an uncomfortable topic to discuss, but I think that the one thing I've seen time and time again, and I still see it, and it's alarming to me, is how our community, young mm-hmm. uh, gay men in particular, who are lacking in self-worth, self-love, go out and yes. think they need to seek validation through sexual partners. Totally. Um, and with that, you know, A, breaks my heart, and B, worries me that we're going to go backwards. So... What's but unfortunately, your... we are like there. Right. I don't know if you've looked at the recent stats, but like we're only getting higher newly infected rates versus it decreasing. And like with the advancements of like what is out there now, like we should be decreasing, but we're only increasing. So Mars, how do we not repeat the same <sighs> mistakes? It's I... just, it's we could be we could have this. Maybe we shall. Yes. This could be a three hour long. <laughs> totally. <podcast. laughs> and it's something I want to talk about all the time because I would say it's one of the biggest worries within our community for me right now. Same. I, I'm getting people message me on Instagram that like are you know in Canada or you know other like very like metropolitan major you know cities that are like 19, 20. They're like I'm just got diagnosed. Like what do I do? And you know, it, it breaks my heart a bit because I'm like, all of the resources are there. But unfortunately, there is this this barrier to access them because still so much shame and stigma exists and no one's talking about it. And, you know, I was so happy that we could have this conversation because, you know, my, my agency emails, you know, hundreds of people and you were the only one who who allowed me to have a conversation for World AIDS Day. 
we have to have this conversation. We have to continue. I think it's one of the biggest outrages of our community that in this day and age, HIV and AIDS for gay and queer people is still... If, if, if there was gay, yeah. the musical, <laughs> HIV and AIDS would be the main plot line. Totally. We are humans. We have love. We, you know, we, we have careers. Mm-hmm. We are leaders. We can do it all. Yes. This doesn't need to be the only no. thing that There's so much more to we, us than that. We are. <laughs> and and, and it, it's, it is part of our community. But by only having conversations like this, the bravery of people like you standing up and and being really honest and putting yourself on the line, which, by the way, I applaud so much and I'm, I'm grateful for, can we make change? But it really does break my heart. I'm even just talking about it. I get, it makes me very emotional sure. because I just don't want us to go backwards. No, me either. And, you know, it, it's hard because it's just like I, I oftentimes I feel like I'm this lone ship, you know, in the night having these conversations and... And, and it's disappointing because, you know, I think that there is still so much more our governments can be doing. There is so much more, like, funding that I feel like should be put into it. I mean, look at what happened during the COVID pandemic. Look how fast everyone reacted. And I think when we have this, like, global collective come together, like, you know, you can really, like, produce a vaccine. You can find, you know, a preventative option. And, and you know, look how long it took. <laughs> for HIV and AIDS. Hey, listen, that was a straight pandemic. Yeah, 100%. You know, you, all of a sudden, that becomes a very politically, yes. um, a political moment, doesn't it? 100%. So look, we can shout and we can scream, but, and we will shout yes. and we will scream, <laughs> but how do we communicate and, and discuss this and, and move this conversation forward and not fear monger? Because I'm sure you within your own orbit, within your own world, or having conversations like this on the daily? I feel like where we're going to see the biggest impact is, like, within our education systems. Like, that that's sort of, like, my goal and my mission is to really, like, you know, I think we need to change the way that we're teaching children about, like, sexual health, you know, and mental health and harm reduction. Like, I think these are all three, like, major topics that need to be taught through the lens of empowerment and not through the lens of shame and abstinence because that's sort of the, the tone that still exists around, you know, these types of topics. Um, you know, so, like, you know, one thing that I've been doing, which has been amazing, I've been, you know, partnering with CANFAR, which is, like, a huge HIV organization that we have here in Canada. And, you know, we've developed together this other platform that's called Sex Fluent. And it's sort of this online youth platform. It's like an education sort of portal that like allows youth to be able to access it to like teach themselves like about these sort of things through like these great modules that we've kind of created that are like fun and very like in kind of like safe and inclusive language and are, and are kind of done in a tone that are like, it's not just like reading a text, you know, it's like they, they, you have to check it out. It's so, so cool the way that we've been able to design it together. And you know, so this was, like, one thing that I was really, like, passionate about that I was so happy that we could sort of start and using social media to, like, connect, you know, with that younger generation to educate them because I think, you know, they are the future of, like, what we're going to face. And, you know, I was once one of those youth that had no idea about HIV. And, you know, when I was diagnosed, I thought I was going to die because I didn't know that there was even medication that existed. So it's, like, I think if we can correct and start there, I feel like, the future, I hope, will be will be even better for them, you know. And since working with CAMFAR, which stands for the Canadian Foundation of AIDS Research, yes. what change have you seen in these spaces? Um, but in particular, non-binary and 
HIV, because, you know, like I said before, this is not one lived experience. No. It's so multi-layered. It's so different for everyone. And obviously, um, HIV, you're non-binary. Yes. Um, and I believe you're sober. I as am well. as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> so how have you seen that change then since working on Sex Fluent? It's allowed myself and I think so many other people to like actually have these conversations you know, and I, I just feel like it's like the first time that I'm publicly having these types of topics. You know, I, I, I post about two videos myself for them like a month, but they have like a whole sort of squad of different people that come from such a, a range of, you know, different identities and backgrounds. So it's so cool to be able to like be able to invest, I guess, like, you know, the time and resources into like publicly putting these conversations out into the world. And like, you know, the impacts have been amazing. Like, I'm getting so many messages from this and it's really cool because I think people are like, oh, like I've always thought this, but I've never been able to like say it out loud. And it's so it's so nice to be able to like be that sort of like first reference, I think, for a lot of people. I think what you're doing is fantastic, Miles. I really do. And I think um, the reason I the very reason, in fact, that I started this podcast was through disillusion in the pandemic and a need and a want to talk to people that were leading, people that were basically saying, no, I'm going to make this change myself, for <laughs> totally. myself and for others. Um, and I think that by becoming leaders within our community, we show up and we show mm -hmm. younger people who we can be and what we're willing to and not to accept. And I think with that, it means that all of a sudden, hopefully these mistakes won't be made because there's visibility. Totally. You know, all of a sudden, you're a role model for these young people and they're not going to be craving love at some sex mm -hmm. party. Literally. They can just come on the internet, they can see the work that you do and they can go, you know what, that's someone that I really aspire to be. So I'm very grateful for this conversation and very grateful at this week in particular that you came and spoke to me today. So thank you so much, Miles. You're amazing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a beautiful conversation and I really appreciate you holding space for everything that we talked about today. 